I invite your attention this evening to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons to himself through Jesus Christ according to his good pleasure the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ which are in heaven and on earth. In him also we have received an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will, that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be, rather should live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, after hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and after believing in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. I remind you of the words of James, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We come to God's word to hear and listen to what he has to say to us. And we can be deceived into thinking that that's good enough. We need to obey. We need to follow through. The usefulness of scripture, as Paul said to Timothy, is important for us to keep in mind. It's an application to our lives. I have treasured memories of exploring God's natural wonders. Biology field trips with Mr. Porter, our Quinter High School biology teacher, were especially thrilling. He would show us how to identify the wildlife and observe God's creation When I was in high school, my father and a couple of friends and I hiked up Monumental Peak, that 13er. I've never been up to a 14er, but I was there 13,000 feet above sea level in the rocky crags of Monumental Peak above Timberline and was just amazed at the, the panoramic view that I could behold. Before we could come down, a thunderstorm came in quickly, 
and we had to hunker down in the rocks. The, the thunder and the hail was terrifying, but it was awesome and majestic. I enjoy hiking and walking in nature, marveling at the wildflowers, watching the birds. I especially anticipate the arrival of our hummingbirds each spring. And yet, the wonders of redemptive history and divine providence excel all these marvels. As we read through the scriptures, we see the unfolding of God's redemptive plan in history, a plan that he conceived and decreed in eternity before the foundations of the world. I like to use the illustration of my wife's quilting projects. When she's finished an intricate quilt, she'll fold it and put it in a box, and sometimes I get to see as she takes it out and unfolds it. And I'm reminded of that as we work our way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Paul's pastoral aim here in Ephesians was to encourage the saints there not to faint at the news of his imprisonment and his trials and tribulations. Paul is near the end of his life. This letter to the Ephesians represents some of the most mature writing of the Apostle Paul, his thought life, his thinking, and his exhortations, along with Philippians and Colossians, probably in the year A.D. 62, somewhere along in there, two or three years before his execution. In prison, chained to Roman soldiers, under house arrest, he spent his time contemplating the wonderful panoramic vistas of God's redemptive purposes. This letter to the Ephesians is one of those mountain peaks in the range of God's biblical revelation. It's one of the highest peaks, and to hike to the top of this, to meditate on this letter to the Ephesians and really soak it up and think about it will cause our hearts to soar with admiration and praise to God. Paul has in mind here the wonderful thing that God has done in the lives of these officians, these saints at Ephesus. He marvels at the bride of Christ, the church of Christ, this, this body of believers that is being built up into a spiritual house of worship, a place where God delights to dwell. And God's doing the same thing in our congregation, in your life and in mine. It's a marvel, a masterpiece. We are his workmanship. He has embroidered our lives. He has quarried us from the world as living stones, Peter would say, being built up together into a spiritual house of worship. God desires to walk among us, to be our God and for us to be his people and because he's lavished us with grace and love, he wants to walk among a people that not only loves him, but displays a wonderful and remarkable love to each other. Think about the Ephesians. 
many of these saints were probably at least to a certain level involved in the cult of Diana. Some perhaps uh, in the magic arts. When they repented and burned their books, they were worth 50,000 drachmas. There was a great riot in Ephesus because the silversmith Demetrius and his friends found that their, their livelihood was being threatened by the transforming grace of God in the lives of these former idol worshipers. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, alienated from God, and before his conversion, he would have considered them as dogs and outsiders, alien, alienated from God and without God and without hope in the world and uh, not welcome in his presence. Jew and Gentile believers in Ephesus displayed the, one, the, the most amazing love for one another. The unity between Jew and Gentile was a spectacle to behold. And Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 3 through 8, Be eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the gift of Christ, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. When Christ triumphed over death and ascended into heaven like a conquering Roman general, he scattered gifts among us. He's given us grace. And we are to be one body in Christ, not just this little congregation, but with all the saints in Colorado Springs, with all the saints throughout the world, we are to labor diligently to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what God requires of us. If we allow ourselves to be given to rivalry and strife like the Corinthians and, and defile the temple of God, God will not take that kindly. As he says, read 1 Corinthians 3 and chapter 6 and 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We are meant to be a temple, a sacred place where God dwells. And there must not be murmuring and complaining and strife and rivalry. We are to love one another and let our light so shine before the world that when they see our good works, they will glorify God in a day of visitation when the Holy Spirit comes to convict outsiders and they think about the, the brothers and sisters at Black Forest Reformed Church and how they love one another. God says that they will be drawn to reconciliation with him. <clears throat> Angels stoop to examine these marvels of divine wisdom, and so should we. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, in speaking about the salvation that the prophets prophesied about Christ and his suffering and the glories to come, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you 
concerning the things which we are now reported, which are now reported to you by those who have preached the gospel to you through the Holy Spirit who was sent from heaven, things into which angels desire to look. And literally, they're stooping like you on a hike, bending over to look at a marvel, a wildflower in the Rocky Mountains. They long to look into what God is doing. The angels didn't understand what God was doing all through the ages, and they've been learning. And as they see what God's doing in your life, they marvel. And Jesus says, the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. When you turn from your sin to trust in Christ. And I remember as a young boy coming to faith in Jesus Christ at my mother's knee. I remember thinking about the angels rejoicing. Here in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12, and 13, Paul says something similar. He says, So that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he completed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulation for you, which is your glory. It's the manifold wisdom of God that is being made known to the angels. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a, a sermon on this and used the analogy of the prism, separating the light, the white light, into, into the spectrum of the rainbow. And the church is like a prism to display for the angels the principalities and powers in heaven, the wonderful work of God and his grace in our lives. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin wrote, God willed to appoint the angels to care for our salvation. Consequently, they attend sacred assemblies. They're here tonight. The church is for them a theater in which they marvel at the varied and manifold wisdom of God. Think of it. The angels are on the edge of their seats in this theater. Wondering and marveling at what God is doing in the lives of even our children who delight to pray and seek God. The nobles and barons of the court of heaven, Jonathan Edwards called them, they are greater in power and glory than humans, yet they are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Edwards suggested that this assignment may have been the occasion of the fall of Satan and his followers, a third of all the angels. Such a demeaning task was beneath him. But for the holy angels, it is a ravishing experience. Preaching on Ephesians 3.10, the wisdom of God displayed in the way of salvation, Edwards proclaimed, it is mentioned as a wisdom such as they had never seen before. Now, 4,000 years since the creation, in all that time, the angels had always beheld the face of God and had been studying God's works of creation. Yet they never, till that day, had seen anything like that, never knew how manifold God's wisdom is as now they knew it by the church. The angels continue to marvel as they watch what God is doing in your life 
and in my life and in our life together as God's people. C.H. Spurgeon, in rather 1880, preached a sermon on 1 Peter 1, 9-12 titled, Your Personal Salvation. With a flair for the dramatic, he tells us of a window open toward this fallen world and heavenly beings looking down upon the earth as if heaven itself had no such object of attraction as Christ and his salvation. Methinks if I saw an angel intently gazing upon any object, if I were a passerby, I should stop and look too. Yea, all heaven to this day has never ceased its amazement at the dying Son of God made sin for men. And will none of you spare an hour to look this way and see your best friend? Well, in these verses here in the first chapter of Ephesians, we have a record of Paul's doxology and praise for the triune God. Perhaps you know that great uh, verse penned in 1674 by Thomas Ken. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Lloyd-Jones says, Redemption always leads to praise. It bursts forth at once in the word blessed. The apostle seems to be like a man who is conducting a great choir and orchestra. Handel seems to have understood this so well. It is the characteristic of some of his greatest choruses. Surely praise and thanksgiving are never to be great are ever to be the great characteristics of the Christian life. We've been hearing about it in the preaching from Acts. We we think about those pilgrims in Peter's ministry who were like aliens and persecuted and yet loved the Lord Jesus and experienced joy unspeakable, full of glory. It's the mark of the Christian who is filled with the Spirit to worship and praise, to rejoice with thanksgiving. Lloyd-Jones says pointedly by way of application, the highest point of all worship and prayer is adoration and praise and thanksgiving. Are we not aware of a serious deficiency and lack as we consider this? When we pray in private or in public, what part does adoration play? We need to understand this wonderful work of redemptive history in order to be filled with joy, to contemplate these things so that we can be more effective in our witness for Christ. And so he begins by praising God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I like to remind folks that in the greetings and in a verse like this, the Trinity is always in the mind of the apostles. Paul here is thinking Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit through whom these blessings come. The Holy Spirit, the Sovereign Spirit, 
equal in glory with the Father and the Son, gives us the gifts and graces that we need for our life. And so in verses 3 through 6, Paul's adoration and praise is focused on the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lloyd Jones wisely points out that this is not the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob and the God of Isaac that he's bringing to the forefront as we, as we see in the Old Testament where God had made a covenant with Abraham. God the Father sealed a covenant with his Son in the councils of eternity. We call that the pact of salvation, the covenant of redemption. Before the foundations of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit agreed. They drew up this covenant, as it were, and committed themselves to accomplishing the plans of the Father. Jesus would accomplish the work that God the Father had planned. The Holy Spirit would come and apply that work to our lives. All before the foundation of the world, God loved you from before the foundations of the world. He chose you in Christ. Paul here is praising each distinct person of the Trinity, the Father in verses 3 through 6, the Son in verses 7 through 12, and the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. And each of those sections concludes with praise and doxology to the praise of the glory of his grace, that we should, <clears throat> that we should live for the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. <clears throat> each section <clears throat> ends in doxology for each person of the Trinity. Paul says these spiritual blessings come to us in the heavenly places in Christ. So before even creating the angels, the Father had drawn up the, uh, the plans for this redemptive work and his plan to love and cherish you as his very own, ransomed by the precious blood of his Son. Now, we, we can only speak figuratively because God is not a man that we should uh, think in those terms, but theologians have taught us to consider this as a pact that they entered into as a covenant with the Son. And the Son voluntarily agreed to leave the glories of heaven and come into this world. These blessings are in the heavenly, uh, spirit, these are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. They're not material, temporal, or earthly blessings. Thomas Goodwin, a 17th century Puritan that I love to read, says these material blessings, as wonderful as they are, the food and clothing that we enjoy, the new car that we've just gotten, the home we live in, these material blessings are good gifts from God. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God is faithful and he blesses us abundantly with material blessings. But Paul's not bringing these into the forefront of his mind. He's thinking of the spiritual blessings. And John and Thomas Goodwin said, these material blessings compared to the spiritual blessings are but toys and rattles for us and I like to add, for us in our infancy, look at a little baby distracted by the toy and the rattle. The child matures and other things grasp their attention. But as God's children, 
We need to look past these toys and rattles at the wonderful spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. Thomas Watson preached sermons on the Shorter Catechism, and he said, As God is a spirit, so the rewards that he gives are spiritual. As the chief blessings he gives us in this life are spiritual blessings. Ephesians 1, 3, not gold and silver. As he gives Christ his love, he fills us with grace. To the main, uh, so the, the main rewards he gives us after this life are spiritual. A crown of glory that fadeth not away. If earthly crowns fade, but the believer's crown being spiritual is immortal, a never fading crown. It is impossible for that which is spiritual to be subject to change or corruption. This may comfort a Christian in all his labors and sufferings. He lays out himself for God and has little or no reward here. But remember, God who is spirit will give spiritual rewards, a sight of his face in heaven. White robes, a weight of glory. Be not then weary of God's service. Think of spiritual reward, a crown of glory, which fadeth not away. And there are many others. Worshiping tonight is a spiritual blessing. Being raised in a Christian home, children, is an unspeakable spiritual blessing. Cherish it and thank God for it. Praise God for your parents who are teaching you and training you to love the Lord Jesus. The word and sacrament in every spiritual blessing. There are too many to count. I, I fancy that they're infinite. We'll spend all eternity exploring these blessings and appreciating them and delving into them and reflecting on what God did for us. The blessings I am to enjoy in this life, says Martin Lloyd-Jones, all the conceivable blessings of God in Christ through the Spirit are described in a very wonderful way by Paul in this epistle to the Ephesians. They start with forgiveness and go on to all the fullness of God. The forgiveness is mentioned in the seventh verse of the first chapter and all the fullness of God in the third chapter, verse 19. What blessings! When am I to enjoy all these great and rich and wondrous blessings? The answer is here and now. Obviously, all this comes to us in a progressive manner. For if the fullness of the Godhead came into us suddenly, we would crack and break. So it comes in installments progressively. We grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you could know Christ right now in all the fullness of his glory and love for you, it would, it would devastate you. You would be broken, as as Lloyd-Jones said. These are in the heavenly places. I, over the years, have have distinguished the first, second, and third heavens this way. There's the cloudy heavens where we have the atmosphere. And there is the starry heavens, this vast universe with the swirling galaxies. And then beyond that, is the third heaven, paradise, the place where Paul was caught up into in a vision or in in person. It gave him unspeakable insight into the glory of God. He heard things that it's not lawful to speak here in this world. 
God gave him that thorn in the flesh so he wouldn't get proud and puffed up about his visions and the glory of God. The third heaven is where God's special presence and glory is manifested. It's the place where the thief on the cross went immediately with Jesus when he breathed his last. Today you will be with me in paradise, in the heavenly places. We are in Christ seated in the heavenly places. We have authority in the parliament of heaven when we pray here on earth by virtue of our union with Christ who is in heaven. We move mountains and affect the affairs of nations. We pray that God would bring wicked tyrants and oppressors down and thwart their plans. Well, the second, oh, I'm not finished with the Father. There are two blessings here I want to underscore, and I've, I've divided these up. I've listed them as seven blessings. You may count them differently, but I like the number seven. It's the perfect number, and it reminds me that this is not a complete list. But God's blessings, every spiritual blessing, uh, is encompassed in Paul's praise and thanksgiving. In praising the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he thanks him for divine election. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And what a controversial doctrine that is. Christians disagree about how to understand what Scripture teaches. And I'm thankful that Lloyd-Jones was very clear about this and said, this doesn't determine your salvation, but you need to contemplate the fact that before you were born, that God in all of his majesty sovereignly chose you in Christ and every single one he gave to Christ and to, to the Holy Spirit to accomplish salvation in their lives. The doctrine of salvation is not something we need to argue with God about. We need to just close our mouth and accept it and marvel and, and praise God for it. It gives him the glory. We can't say that I've earned merit or I have any standing with God because of, of anything in me. He chose me unworthy as I am, at enmity with God, dead in my trespasses and sin. He chose me and loved me in a personal way because he wanted me to be with him. Jesus wants you to be with him in glory. He has you on his heart like the high priest. He prays for you. He ever lives to intercede for you. Your salvation is secure. And so this not only gives God the glory, it comforts you to know that your salvation is certain. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. God in eternity decreed that you would be, that you would be uh, rescued like a brand from the fire. The second blessing that he mentions is in verse 5, divine predestination. We are predestined to adoption as sons. This decree that you would certainly be welcomed into the family of God brings comfort and assurance of salvation. Then Paul turns his attention to the Father's beloved Son in verses 7 through 12. In him, the beloved, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the beloved, the Lord Jesus, the son of the father. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, which are in heaven and on earth. In him also we have received an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. that we who were the first to hope in Christ should live for the praise of his glory. There's that phrase again. The praise of Christ's glory, the praise of the triune God's glory. Christ voluntarily laid aside his glory and came into this world in the form of a servant. He laid down his life. He who knew no sin became sin for you and for me that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He, prayed, he paid the ransom price to rescue us from our slavery and bondage to sin. He set us free. He delivered us like the, the Israelites from Egypt and bondage and slavery there. The three blessings of the Father's beloved Son are first in verses 7 and 8, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because of the blood of Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All your sins, past, present, and future, have been covered by the blood, and you are called to walk faithfully with Christ and to repent of your sins daily and turn again to him and to rejoice and marvel that he would love you and forgive you. The second blessing of the Son is the mystery revealed. This plan of God that was hidden from the foundations of the world was gradually unfolded, especially through the preaching of the apostles. They preached Christ, and this whole plan of God to bring about healing and reconciliation for a world that was broken and alienated from him, a world filled with strife and sorrow and suffering. God has determined through his son Jesus to reunite all of this, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ which are in heaven and on earth. The third blessing mediated by the Son here is our inheritance received. We are heirs together with Christ. All things are ours. We inherit the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. We are heirs together and the foreshadowing of this was in the division of the land of promise, the land of Canaan by lot. You have received an inheritance, and the deed for that inheritance is in heaven, safe and secure, according to the apostle Peter. Peter said to the Lord, see, we have left all and follow you. So he said to them, 
Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus has promised us an inheritance. We're heirs with him. We belong to the family of God by his work of redemption. We've been adopted into the family. And finally, Paul turns his gaze to the Holy Spirit and mentions two more blessings, sealed with the Spirit and the earnest or down payment of our inheritance. Paul praises the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. And listen carefully to the order here. In him you also, after hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and after believing in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now I could preach a series of sermons on just that phrase. Or I'd have to if I were going to explain it well. I'm not sure I could actually do it. But the Holy Spirit is like a seal. When you take wax and melt it to seal a document, to authenticate it or to secure it, or to, as a sign of ownership, that seal on the deed of property. The Holy Spirit impresses upon you and me his holiness and the character of Christ. He's the seal, and when he comes in power in our lives, we have a sense of assurance of salvation that is unspeakable and full of glory, a joy unspeakable and full of glory. I don't have time to go into the great controversies about what that phrase means, but I believe that it's distinct from the Holy Spirit who causes regeneration. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and quickens us, awakens us. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, and we have been made alive together with Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, We read about in John 3, being born again. The natural man can't understand these things that we're thinking about tonight. It's foolishness to him. Until he's given a new nature by the Holy Spirit, he won't even be interested in these things in a deep and spiritual way. But the Holy Spirit in some way seals us and gives us assurance of salvation. I have... uh, a reference here to the Confession of Faith, the um, chapter on assurance of salvation, assurance of grace and salvation. And they mention, and they debated this, but they mentioned the three main pillars of this assurance, infallible assurance, that is a, a, an unshakable assurance, a confident assurance that we're saved, is founded upon the divine truth of the promises, the word of God, Go to the word of God, the precious and magnificent promises of God in scripture to encourage your heart about your salvation. Secondly, the inward evidence of those graces under which these promises were made or are made. As we look into our hearts and the Holy Spirit helps us to see the fruit that's there, it encourages us and gives us confidence and a fullness of assurance that we are indeed the sons of God. And then they mention the testimony of the spirit of adoption. 
witnessing with our spirits that we're the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. That's where the debate came. That's where some of the Westminster theologians believed it's just a reference to the Holy Spirit helping us to evaluate the fruit in our life. Others like John Goodwin and Samuel Rutherford, by the way, a Scottish Puritan, if you want to call him that, believed that there's something here about the way the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we're the children of God. Always with the scripture, never apart from scripture, not some extra biblical intimation that we're the sons of God. Not a voice, an audible voice necessarily, but an assurance. One theologian put it like this, it's the whispering of the Holy Spirit that we're, we're precious to God, we're the children of God in connection with some passage of scripture that we're reading. One, I think it was Thomas Goodwin, who said, it's like a father and his little boy walking down the road and they're walking together, maybe hand in hand. And the son knows he belongs to the father. He, he knows he's his father. But the father might pick him up on a whim and hold him in his arms and whisper in his ear, I love you, I love you. And that's how the Holy Spirit sometimes brings home to us the scriptures that we're meditating on. second blessing given by the Holy Spirit here is the earnest, the down payment of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit in our lives. As we are full of the Holy Spirit, we're aware that this is just a down payment of our inheritance. It's the earnest money. Now, I think it's helpful to think about being filled with the Spirit. In John 3, it spoke about Jesus being full with all the fullness of, of the Spirit. And his baptism with the Holy Spirit coming down filled him with the Spirit. We can be more or less filled with the Spirit. We need to seek the Spirit. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to bless our time together. And as Jesus taught in Luke 12, when we are praying, asking and seeking and knocking, the Father knows that you need these things. He'll give you the Holy Spirit, he says. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to anoint us and to bless us and to fill us with this joy. I want to end by reminding you that this doxology compels Paul then to give thanks and to pray fervently for the Ephesians. Here in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and then chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, this prayer for them. He prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom in the revelation and knowledge of God, that they would understand these things, that they would be enlightened in their mind to understand the hope of our calling, what God's goal is for us, what his outcomes are, to speak in educational terms. The hope of glory, the, the surpassing greatness of his um, inheritance and the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. He's saying there, I hope that you'll come to realize how much God treasures you as his inheritance. We are his people, his heritage and the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. The same power that brought Jesus up from the grave in his resurrection and ascension into heaven to be seated at the Father's right hand is at work right now in your life if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. 
The Holy Spirit works mightily in us. Then in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, he prays that God would strengthen them with might in the inner man that, they might, that Christ might dwell in their hearts by faith. Why would we need to be strengthened in the inner man? Because if Christ comes into our lives in the fullness of his glory, it would crush and annihilate us. We need to be strengthened to bear the weight of this glory, of his love, as we come to appreciate it in all of its breadth and length and height and depth. This love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. When was the last time you were so moved by the love of Christ for you that you wept? Not that that's an essential and necessary thing, but if you really know Christ and know what he's done for you, it can't help but move you, his love for you. And then he concludes that we might be filled with all the fullness of God, and I've yet to figure out what that means. The fullness of God filled Christ in his humanity. Paul was praying this. Well, the best way I can, can end this evening is to remind you of something that happened to Jonathan Edwards one afternoon in 1737. He didn't mean this for public notice. It was written down in his journal. But one afternoon as he rode his horse out into the woods for contemplation to walk and pray he slipped off his horse and spent the next hour weeping on the neck of that horse. He said, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens the person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. I have several other times had views very much of the same nature and which have had the same effects. And I think that has something to do with the sealing of the Spirit, the Spirit witnessing with his Spirit, precious son, precious daughter, I've paid the price. You belong to me and not, nothing can separate you from my love for you. Let's respond by singing Psalm 32C. Psalm 32C. Please stand to sing and remain standing for the benediction. <clears throat>